Today we have two Brooklyn people on this discussion and the topic we're going to be discussing would be how does it look from the top. So I reached out to Lindsay and Tony on our Facebook group and it's brilliant that they have agreed to give me the other one today. So I'll have Lindsay T.H. Jackson with me and Tony Chapman with me today to talk about this topic that we're all passionate about. Lindsay, could you give us a short introduction about yourself, please? Oh, thank you, Mila. And thank you so much for having both myself and Tony. Um, yes, so I am based in Seattle, Washington. I'm an artist and performer. And I'm also the co-founder of the Diversity Center of Seattle and Washington. So we're really honored to be represented here and to have this important discussion with you today. Thank you. You're welcome. It's an honor to have you in this space as well. Tiffany, could you give us a short introduction about yourself, please? Sure, and thank you for having me as well. My name is Tony Chapman. I am here in New York City. I am a professional speaker and corporate relationship expert. I uh, have my own company called Chapman Enterprises in which we really look at the human side of business. Brilliant. Thank you again for coming on board and agreeing to have this dialogue on this space. So let's just dive in, shall we? So the topic we're going to be talking about is how does it look from the top, right? And we're going to be approaching it from a very humanistic perspective, humanizing perspective, DNI, belonging identity perspective. And I also feel really strongly about this topic. So let's start with the first question that I have. Um, do we have leaders who are truly diverse or do we have token individuals to fill the diversity spot, right? I feel that sometimes companies hard here to fill that checkbox that the government requires us to, right? And it becomes a tokenism in the space where you have a group of panel where there are Caucasians and then you have one POC to fill that mm -hmm. diversity factor, right? So, but I want to hear from your perspective. Um, how has tokenism become more prevalent or is tokenism just a myth? Wow, you know, let's uh, let's start uh, strong, Mila. Just keep <laughs> yeah, yeah, no shallow end, no, no bunny hill, no nothing. warm up, you know. Wow. I was like, uh, I like long walks on beaches. Um, wow, I, I think this is a big question and um, there's a risk of it sounding very loaded. I think that it is, and you know, I would love to really hear Tony back and forth, your thoughts on this. I think you have both. That would be my assessment and um, our research at the Diversity Center of Seattle and Washington we uh, talk about how there was a first phase of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And looking back on that, I would make the statement that there was a lot of tokenism happening. And we're defining tokenism as uh, to tick the box on diversity, we're going to tap just somebody who is a POC, a person of color, or a woman, or um, 
has a different level of able-bodiedness, something like that. Does that mean that those same individuals were not um, qualified to finally be put and promoted into that position? Absolutely not. A lot of times they uh, were. And so what was uh, interesting about it as we looked what at what unfolded over sort of a 20 year span is that those individuals were in a token way put in that position because they didn't stay. They were put in that position, but there was no actual follow on whereby we were going to allow for that diversity of thought and diversity of experience to actually shape the company from the top down. And so I think we would all say that that is when it becomes tokenism. Tony, do you want to jump in there? Oh, I'd love to. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, and I'm going to be pretty unfiltered. Mm. So... We like unfiltered. <laughs> I, I got that sense. I thought I would just jump in. And this is a topic <laughs> I think about quite a bit, honestly. So I completely agree with Lindsay in that. Yeah, it's a combination of both. But even within that, there's a much higher degree of tokenism than not. And I think it's for a variety of reasons. Some of it is intentional. We're just trying to check a box and now we've got someone and ta-da, we've solved everything. I think for others, they have not really addressed the systemic issues within their organization. And so their attempts at fulfilling, you know, or creating diversity in the top levels fall flat because they just don't know what they're doing. I do think that there is also the reality that for some organizations, the idea of seceding power is scary to them and they're not willing to do it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those really strange challenges. I was listening to a podcast with Malcolm Gladwell and he said something I'll never forget. He said, the problem is in the moment, the person, person taking that position does not know whether they're a token or a trailblazer. Yeah. And they often won't find out until later on. And so people will enter the position thinking that they're in a trailblazing position. But if there's no decentralization of power, if there's no ability to change systemic, uh, change systemic problems and there's no ability to replicate themselves and create more people like them within those positions, then it turns out to be tokenism, whether that's intentional or not. Yes. Yes. Very beautifully put, both of you. I, I love what, you said to me, it becomes a systemic issue, right? Mm -hmm. And and let's talk about trailblazer and being in a token, uh, <laughs> being in a token space. And how can we identify? Because the whole concept, my, my whole thing is that let's identify the issue from a systemic level, right? And let's shift that paradigm from a negative to a positive, right? So most of the time, and and I've seen this happening in some companies where a person, like you said, a person of uh, color or a, a minority person will enter a higher position thinking that they're going to be trailblazers, but in actual fact, they are the token. And this is inherently displayed in meetings, right? You go into a, a meeting where you will have the upper manager, which is the board of directors, and then you are the global a lead or a global leader or you are the chief of diversity or chief of of people and you'll all be in on the table and when it comes 
to your turn. There are micro exclusions done in the format of how people actually speak with you, speak at you, speak over you. That, that are differences, right? So just to bring visibility and awareness as to how we can shift that needle, right? From probably it's unconscious bias, from that unconscious bias to consciously, intentionally including not just a person who is viewed as a token, let's include them as a trailblazer, right? What are some micro actions can we do from the top? Well, I mean, one of the things that um, I teach in, I, uh, when I go into organizations, I often start with um, an education around why we fail to reach our full potential. And that's for all of us. And what is important in that is to understand how from a very young age, the majority of us, I've lived in four continents, I've done this work all over the world, and I'm talking the majority of us across this planet, have taken on ideas around how we survive in the world, in uh, the, our communities, in our workplaces, in our families. And those ideas are often born out of fear. And so un take, for example, um, I'll speak quite personally about myself. So as a child, I grew up in a household where the idea was that in order to thrive in order to receive love and attention, I had to always succeed. I had to win at everything. And so imagine when I take that into a workplace, the idea is that it's always a win or lose mindset. And so that happens from two sides. If I'm that token trying to be a, a trailblazer and my only options are to win or lose, then I'm sitting at the table and I'm always scanning the dynamic for um, how do I win or lose? And if I judge that to win means I have to be silent, I just have to survive, then that means I'm not going to be a trailblazer because I'm not going to reach out and help the next person up. I'm just going to survive so that my image of success can thrive. Now, on the other side of the table, if I'm the leader who's trying to diversify my team, that same win or lose mindset puts me in a fear-based state at all times. If my POC person, if that woman who's now at the table, if that um, you know, difference of ability, if that person wins, that means I have to lose, right? And these are in bed, you know, these are unconscious biases that go down to the very root of who we are. And so that's why when we're teaching, we always start from an I loop. You have to deal with your own stuff before you can then invite diversity to the table. And then when you div invite diversity to the table, you're encouraging everybody to deal with their stuff. And that's how we begin to move past microaggressions to actual uh, empathy of thought and expansion of thought. Does that make sense? I love what you just said, right? It, it's the self 
and it it resonates so well with me, Lindsay, uh, because I, I was born in a different country. I've lived in different countries, and there's always a difference in how culture, mm-hmm. culture works, cultural communication, cultural habits, right? And there's always individualistic culture and collective culture, yeah. right? In collectivism, the practice where how can we and then individualistic cultures, how can I? And you hit on a very important point about win and success, right? And mm-hmm. success can be very subjective to an individual. And like you said, it goes back in time. It goes back into our systemic beliefs, systemic programming, yeah. uh, systemic outlooks, perception, perspective, and how we grow, right? Based on whatever was instilled into our childhood. Now, how can we actually promote that success and winning is different though, right? Because everyone has got a very singular concept. How can we move from that very singular lens into a widened lens of success and winning does not mean that you're a great leader, does not mean that you're doing so well, Success and winning can be so subjective. I actually had a conversation with a seven-year-old boy this earlier this year when I did a documentary in Southeast Asia and I asked him, what does success mean to you? A seven-year-old boy said, success means that I'm helping others mm. to do what they want to do. And this came from a seven-year-old boy. Wow. And I was utterly shocked. So I want to pose this question to Tony, you and Lindsay. How? can we move from a very singular lens of what success is to a visionary lens of what, how we should perceive success to be from the top and for a group of diverse people where we include not just one community, but multiple communities. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm pausing because I want to make sure that I answer the right question. Because the the thing that stands out to me in really adding on to what Lindsay said earlier, when you you have to deal with the eye first, but then there's also this thing called affinity bias, right? Affinity biases, it turns out, you know, when you and I do something that's out of character, well, we know the backstory. So we give ourselves a little bit of a pass. We know we're still a good person. Well, it turns out that when we see someone that we believe is like us, then we use the exact same neural pathways to think about them that we would use to think about ourselves. And so with them, we're more empathetic. We're, we're more patient. We give them the benefit of the doubt. And with people that we don't feel that way, it's not that we're mean or, or harsh towards them. It's that we're more objective and by the book. And that's really what I think we see playing out in a lot of boardrooms and within the culture a lot of times. It's really not the overt discrimination. It is that person gets the benefit of the doubt and that person doesn't. And so now as we start talking about translating that into success, what often happens is we have this mindset of success and we need to have everyone then fit into our box versus having enough empathy and having enough communication to say, okay, here's my perspective of success. What is yours? What is yours? What is yours? And then being able to have a conversation on, so how does all of that fit in within an organization? And the irony of it is, I think that that's the same thing that happens with diversity, right? So a little backstory, 
I went to an undergraduate, for my undergrad college, I went to a school that had a 22,000 person undergrad class. But I was in a very niche program. And so I was only the second African American to ever graduate from my program. Right. So since my sophomore year, I've been the only black person in the room. Right. Mm. So. A, I've had to learn how to navigate and code shift and fit in in areas where I would not naturally fit in. Uh, but B, when you're the only black person, you always get selected to be the spokesperson for <laughs> diversity and inclusion, right? Hey, we're going to have this diversity committee. Hey, Tony, we need you, right? Not like I don't have other things to already do, but now you get sucked in. You're the honorary president yeah, every time. The, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm the president of the black club, and I really appreciate um, I was voted in by all of my constituents who look just like me. That would be me. Um, but here's what's fascinating normally you get pulled in and there's already an initiative that's begun and now your job is to implement it. I never remember having someone ask, so Tony, from your perspective, what would make our organization more inclusive? Mm. It's far more often that I'm here to execute a plan that was created by someone who does not have that diverse lens, right? So now we go back to what you said about success. It's the exact same thing if you have your lens of success and you want everyone else to execute it, but you've not gotten their lens on it, then you're not going to have organizational success. I absolutely love it. And um, just to touch on being, in, being invited to join this group, this committee, right? It has happened to me so many times as well. So <laughs> I, when I moved, when I moved to the United States, uh, like 15, 16 years ago, Right, people would always uh, just, they would not even ask me questions. They would just say, Pakistan, India. It was mm. a statement made, right? They would not ask me, where are you from? Or are you here visiting? They would not ask me any questions. It was just Pakistan, India. And then when I decided to go back to school to learn about human conditioning uh, and communication, because my background was in chemical engineering, but I've always been fascinated. No, so is mine. <laughs> Oh. oh my goodness, we got a totally different conversation <laughs> to have later. Yeah, yeah, I'm a chemical engineer too. I'm okay, left well, out. I'm feeling well. left out. Yeah, oh, no, and you no. should. Yeah. You should. You should feel totally left out because you're not one of us. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Go back. Relates to our conversation. Well, no, no, this doesn't count. We don't want you included here. We're trying to go a different way. No. We're, right. we're trying to build. Yes. something chemically but anyway yes. okay. <laughs> i will tell you one day about the dance that i once did in order to prove how the arts relates to engineering and we'll get on that oh we'll have that conversation too oh, i got we'll a lot for you. Yeah, yeah, i'm sure we will <laughs> so I, my background is in engineering but i've always been fascinated with human behavior how cultures work so i've always traveled to different parts of the world lived and, and learned about tribes and communities ever since I was like 15 but when I went back to to school to really you know get a degree because everyone wants to know what degree do you have how qualified are you to really speak on this I was a, a university in Wisconsin I mean I had the best time over there but there were so many nuanced micro behavior right and I was waiting to 
to to buy books and in the bookshop and this random person who Mark never spoken to, it was a Caucasian male in his 40s, said, you belong in the international club. You should go join the international club. And I looked at him and I said, why should I be joining the international club? And he said, because that's where all your people are. And I looked at him and I said, humans? You mean humans? <laughs> <laughs> and I think people just do not understand, like, like, like it goes back to what Lindsay had, you have said, Tony, you have said, the, the unconscious bias, right? And, and the, whole, the whole programming and where, which part of the world do you belong to? What do you see on the telly? What do you hear on the radio? What do you see on the media? Just because someone looks a certain type of a skin color, they immediately have this conception as you fit into this group so you can bring something to the table. But when I actually, I actually went to the international club to find out what this hoo-ha was about. And you're so right, it was about someone else having this image of what international culture should be, how international students should be. I was not even an international student, so I was already a resident of the United States. And they portray this rightly stereotypical execution as to what international day should be, international people should be, how they communicate, how they can't communicate, how we have to be compassionate. And being compassionate translated to rightly speaking slowly to international students. Mm. And it was it was an eye-opener. It was an eye-opener for me because it translates really well to the workspace as well, right? Because I have I have worked with Fortune 500 companies. Uh, I was with Amazon Web Services, and even that, there were so many new ones hidden uh, bias which surfaced as to oh you're from this country, so you should know. I feel that no one can really be an ambassador for a whole group of people when we actually want to approach diversity inclusion belonging identity because my neighbor even though my neighbor looks like me or is from the same country as i have i was born in or were in the same countries that i traveled to and lived to does not mean that we share the same beliefs does not mean that we look at the same subject from a very same lens and (laughs) we have to shift that mindset you're going to say something yeah mila you're just reminding me of you know, one of the most common uh, starters of a conversation that we'll often have when we're taking on new clients and we ask them, well, what have you done with your initiative thus far? And one of the most common responses is, oh, we had an international potluck, meaning that we had, (laughs) you're all, see, you're all making the face because you know, (laughs) meaning that they, they, somebody got in the room and thought the best way to kick off a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative and to solve racism and homophobia and um, gender and equity pay gaps was to have everybody bring a dish from their culture and that this somehow was going to uh, move us forward. And so on one hand, it's that, yes, uh, somebody is 
getting people around the table to often begin these initiatives in a workplace. And for whatever reason, they're, they're missing the, the target, right? And so how do you go about getting the right people in that room? I think this comes back to something that the three of us were speaking about before we officially started today, that, that buy-in that has to happen at every level and you know when you're we're talking about top down you do not start this work by having a whole bunch of people at the top sit around the table and say we're going to do diversity equity inclusion you have to really work from bottom to top top to bottom and be prepared to flip that the people at the so-called bottom may be the best people to lead this initiative and to come up with the parameters around what the initiative will look like but I want to talk about something that um, I have found to be really controversial when I present this on stages all around the world. And that is the idea that often when we're doing this work, we run the risk of alienating a certain part of the group within a culture and to be very specifically specific about it. It's our uh, individuals that identify as white in the room, and then even more specifically, those individuals that identify as white, heterosexual, uh, cis, male in the room. And I think it's really important that as we move forward with this work, we lead our education, lead our discussions around how those individuals are also suffering within the system. The system doesn't work for anybody. That when some are oppressed, everybody is oppressed under the system. And I think that one of, I'm working on a piece right now where I'm really focusing on just these interviews with uh, this specific demographic, these um, sort of 65 year old white men and the fear to do this work and the fear that they might say something wrong, the fear that they might do something wrong, and I mean the, the well-meaning individuals that really want to do this work, means that they do isolate themselves in a room trying to get these initiatives going. And there has to be, uh, I'm very passionate and speaking very openly about this now, that we have to do this work from from a new lens where we're saying everybody is oppressed in some way. Yes, privilege shows up differently, but there is a similar oppression that happens to all of us within this system where we have hierarchies of privilege, where we have rules about who is meant to thrive and who is meant to not thrive around uh, men being not allowed to have emotions or feelings and still be considered a man. All of that is oppressive. And that if we start the conversation there where everybody understands how they are oppressed under the system, then the initiatives become about how we all move forward to create a better workplace and society. I absolutely love what you just said. Tony, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah. So, you know, my journey into the unconscious bias realm was 
kicking and screaming because I didn't want to be the black diversity guy. But the science behind unconscious bias, I thought gave me an entry point that I would not have had before because I, my issue was I did not like the older models of diversity because they were guilt driven. Yeah. And I think that's, to me, that's part of what you're saying. And so when dealing with unconscious bias, if it's done properly, you can remove the guilt away from it. The mm. challenge, you know, so I, what you said resonates with me very much. And it's conversations that I've had quite often. The challenge is, number one, I almost never use the word privilege, especially mm -hmm. in a public setting workshop, because it's divisive. It just, yes. because of how it's been interpreted, it's just going to, to cause more objections and barriers than it's mm -hmm. going to do any good. You know, helping people to see that there are biases beyond race and beyond yes gender is really helpful. You know, when you start to say, well, you know, 58% of CEOs are six foot tall or higher, that's 14 and a half percent of the American population. And 30% are six foot two or higher, which is only uh, 2.5, I think, percent of the US population. So there's a height bias. And you start talking about weight bias, which, because I work in the medical field often, weight bias is huge uh, as far as doctor-patient interactions. So that we can take it out of just a classical diversity and inclusion model and start talking it into talking about it in the terms or framework of a decision making model. Yeah. If you're going to make good decisions, you have to address biases, and you have to understand these biases affect how you judge people of color, how you judge people with a disability, how you judge short people. Uh, there's a beauty bias. There's all these other things, and what happens is we're not nearly as objective as we claim to be. So I think that is another uh, opportunity to have the conversation. And, the, you know, I, I, I think about this, people's fear of making mistakes quite often. And it's really a, it's an indicator of how segregated we really are. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a, a study by the Public Religious Research Institute that says self-reported 70% of white people in the United States have no black friends, okay? So if you have no relationship with a person, and this is just black and white, we haven't gotten into Hispanic, we haven't gotten into Arab nations, we haven't gotten into you know all these others, just from a black and white standpoint, then a lot of these fears are very unbased because what you've done is you've seen a reaction on YouTube or you've seen a reaction on Facebook or you've seen a reaction that was reported here. And it was, it was a statistical anomaly, but because you have nothing to compare it to, you think that it's the norm. And so now you're afraid of making the mistake that this person made because they were talking to a crazy person, not because they were talking to a person of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love what you just mentioned about bias technique you mentioned about you know the unconscious bias that we have right how do we relate uh, because we we have the unconscious bias right mm -hmm. uh, towards people who are obese or people who look much more better looking or people who sound more intelligent or sound like us who relate to us right and i was having this conversation where uh, my friend hollis cam he's the vp 
of human resources and he mentioned that that stems actually from childhood right yeah right our own insecurities and going back to I, i call it the first degree of fear it comes from a lens of insecurities and where are those insecurities coming from how have we been programmed since childhood what have yeah. we been exposed to right when i say exposed to it's just not the telly on the radio on media on newspapers i grew up in a time where there was newspapers so mm. <laughs> i write the newspapers right and now everything is via smartphone instagram and whatnot so and when you go to the playground right when, when you go to the playground you have this diverse group of humans as a child right as, as a child you go to the playground and you see people who do not look like you and the conversations that come out of this five-year-olds or eight-year-olds sounds very different like oh i can't play with you because you are dirty based on my skin color i can't play with you because you're fat uh, terms like roly-poly comes about or you know, when you're in primary one, or I've seen this when I was in primary school, when you are in a classroom and they'll give you your grades and for maths or science, and teachers back then would read out the grades, like, oh, Mila got 50 or 100, or Lucy got 5 or 100, or Ali got 20 or 100. And that is a form of, de- I call it dehumanization because it's shaming. Right, shaming, I look at it as dehumanizing because when you dehumanize someone, you are reducing their worth in front of a group of people. And that is a lens of insecurity. It's fear-based, right? And that, when it comes about, like you mentioned, um, you know, how, how do we show up? How do we show up plays a huge part in what, whether someone is gonna accept us or reject us, right? And, and that, also needs to be that conversation of you know building a sense of belonging how do we accept people for who they are absolutely absolutely and building on what you said mila um one of the tools that i work with is called the enneagram and in there they call it the missed childhood message and that missed childhood message, like you said, it can even come out of the fourth trimester, that uh, beginning of the separation of the infant from the parent, and as the ego is beginning to build. And so those messages, that's why, to your point, it's so important to begin to unearth them around how we begin shaping our identity around how we survive in the group setting. And that is so important to understand as we begin. And we know that as an animal, we are naturally attuned to start sort of making those boxes. Okay. Like Tony was saying, you look like me uh, and you kind of look like my brother and you kind of, and so, he's safe, that's safe, she's safe because of that. And we're making those connections. But, you know, I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old and I like to think I'm doing as well as I can to model a diverse style of thinking or an acceptance of diversity. And yet I realize how much I have to be on it. 
as a parent to to monitor the way that my child who is just a human is already starting to make those boxes. I don't know if um, Mila or Tony, if you're parents and you can relate to that, but you know, you have to be very on it as a parent to say, okay, tell me how you got to he's scary or she's scary. What was that related to? Okay, well now let's look for something else where you can find connection. Hey, they have polka dot shoes. You have a polka dot shirt. We love polka dots. Let's expand our thinking. And you know, so imagine if a child at five or seven is having to do that. Now, when we are trying to deconstruct that in our 20s and our 30s and our 40s and our 50s, it takes a lot of uh, deprogramming. Can any of you relate to yeah. that? Yeah. 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 And I do have children. So I completely uh, relate to what you just said. I think one of the the beauties of how we're built is that we're still being programmed, right? And what I've seen, and there's a lot of data to back it up, is that even as an adult, prolonged positive exposure to these outgroups helps to reprogram your thinking. And, and what can happen, it can be, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have the skill set of Dr. Phil, although I don't know that Dr. Phil has a skill set of Dr. <laughs> Phil, but that's a different uh, thing. You have uh, your own skill set. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll take my skill set and keep going, right? I, I don't have that skill set, but what I have seen is that when people begin to have that prolonged positive exposure, and then they start to reevaluate their biases, conscious and unconscious, because we have to be honest, they're our conscious ones, a lot of times then the person is able to go back and start to deconstruct how that happened and how that occurred. And so it's a great discovery. So we don't have to feel that the pressure or the onus is on us as one coming in trying to help them. But if we create the right environment and give them the right enlightenment, then they can have that their own journey of self-discovery. Oh my God. And I, I'm so right with you, Tony, on that because one of the main things I uh, notice and why I'm obsessed with this work and probably both of you would agree with this is there, that moment when somebody feels what acceptance could feel like when they are, are unearthing their, what they think are their deep, dark secrets of, you know, I, I, I secretly always wanted to be a painter but I wasn't allowed to be a painter. Or, hey, you know what? I like to cry, but I'm a man and I wasn't allowed to cry. Hey, you know, I think that my gender identity is this, or I think that, you know, that that experience, once people start to feel what real acceptance and inclusion could feel like, the thing about that is you wanna give that to everybody else. It's, it's contagious once you feel it, but so many of us have never felt that. And, you know, uh, to build on what Tony said, you know, I think of Brene Brown talking about that vulnerability. It's vulnerable to A, be able to admit to yourself who you truly are, and then to find the courage to bring that to your workplace. And when we're talking about that top down, so many leaders are in the leadership seat and they have never actually shown up as their true self at work because they feel that 
that would be the day they get fired. Right, right. That's it. Yeah, I, I love what you just mentioned about acceptance. And I know in the spirit of time, we have got one more minute left. Oh, no. Let's, um, I would like to hear your closing remarks about how can we practice equity of acceptance? Um, Tony, would you like to start? Do you mean in an organizational perspective or personally? Personally, because we have to accept from personal and then come upward to a workplace. Sure. I would say, uh, you know what? Um, I, I'm, I've got like three questions in my head at the same time. So I want to make sure. <laughs> I think I'm going to say like totally the wrong, I'm going to answer the wrong question. Um, the things that stand out to me, strategically get out of your comfort zone in terms of relationships. You have to build relationships with people that you've never been exposed to so that you can unearth biases and you have to be willing to overcome the biases that you know that you already have. And on top of that, there's a lot of science that says accountability is really important. And so having a few safe relationships who hold you accountable, whether they're asking you how is it going or in the moment, they're able to say, well, Tony, you should reconsider how you just responded because that's one of the hardest things when you deal with microaggressions, especially is people don't take being challenged on their response well in the moment. So having a safe relationship that you have that agreement with, I think it would go really well. Brilliant. Lindsay? Yes. Expanding on what Tony just said, I think um, the number one question I ask myself and leaders uh, when working with them is, are you showing up fully as yourself today? Fully expressed, because if you are not, then you are not going to be able to create a culture where that is going to happen for anyone else. And I think to Tony's point, if in order to get there, it may need that you bring somebody from the outside who is going to help you draw your own self out and then lead you as you then spread that through your work culture or your uh, community group. So that accountability piece is so important because like we said, for many of us, that was never modeled. We didn't grow up in a family group where we were allowed to show up as our full self and that just continues. So show up as your full self and then begin teaching others. Beautifully put. Thank you again, Lindsay and Tony for sharing your time, sharing your mind and your heart because that's where it starts from the heart.